0: Now entering our 23rd year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1193, with a release and air date of Saturday, January eighth, 2022. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 23rd year of service to the amateur radio community all around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1193 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL is surveying Field Day participants in order to finalize the rules and regulations for Field Day 2022. The Volunteer Monitor Program report for the month ending December 2021 has been released. We will have the full report. We will introduce you to the League's newly appointed Director of Emergency Management. The new technician question pool has been released. We will tell you about the changes and the effective date. The ARRL Foundation grants first-year funding for the ARIS-STAR Keith Pugh Initiative. The League is strongly opposed to the U.S. Forest Service proposal to increase fees for communications facilities. The Radio Amateurs of Canada announces its new president. Colorado Amateurs assist communications during wildfires in that state, and amateur in Iceland has completed over 27,000 contacts during 2021. Amateurs in Germany proposed to build Wi-Fi networks in disaster areas. And one Navy veteran has spent time during the pandemic to build and outfit a complete communications trailer. It even has a kitchen. We will introduce you to him and tell you all about his project in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, compares today's modern laptops to early mainframe computers and will tell us how the nation's wireless carriers are moving forward with 5G deployment this week, ignoring the FCC and FAA directives about 5G's potential to interfere with airline altimeters. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will present a segment he calls Leaving the Hobby. Our own amateur radio historian Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill looks back to the 1970s and the college war resistance network that was taking place on amateur radio. And our Tower Climbing and Antenna Master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about performing tower work with and for other amateurs. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George W2XBS.
1: And reporting from the newsroom in Half Moon, New York, I'm Terry Saunders, N1KIN. And reporting
2: from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY.
3: And reporting from our outpost atop the Catskill Mountains in western New York State, where it's beginning to look like January, even though we did miss the big snowstorm, I'm Don
4: Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our Train New York News Bureau, where the snowdrifts are just about up to my ankles, I'm Eric, KD2RJX.
5: And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, I'm Fred,
6: November Fox, 2 Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where snowfall has thus far been the Instagram kind, you know, the kind that's here in the morning and gone by the afternoon but it has been a three-cat night cold. Brrr. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR.
0: And now with this week's lead story, here is Terry Saunders, N1KIN.
1: Leading off our news this week, the AWRL Programs and Services Committee is seeking input from stations and groups that participated in AWRL Field Day 2020 and 2021 and has posted a survey. For more details on this survey, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files
7: this report. The committee said the survey results may help shape the development of field day rules for 2022 and beyond. The survey has already gone out to some 13,000 field day participants, more than 2,400 affiliated clubs, and to various reflectors. ARRL Radio Sport Manager Bart Yankee, W9JJ, said the Programs and Services Committee hopes to learn if participants prefer to continue field day under the pandemic accommodations afforded in 2020 and 2021, which included limiting home stations to 150 watts, and weather stations in other or all classes should be limited to 150 watts as well. The idea here was to minimize the advantage of well-established home stations with superior antenna systems and running up to the legal 1500 watt limit. During 2020 and 2021, ARRL permitted a couple of basic accommodations in the Field Day rules, such as allowing Class D home stations to work each other for point credit and contribute their scores to an aggregate club score. The survey link is a bit long, but you can find it in the story on the ARRL website or in this week's edition of the ARRL letter. The survey will close on January 17th, I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME.
1: Specifically, as we look towards 2022 field day, health and social distancing concerns may continue in June 2022 during the ongoing world pandemic, said AWRL radio sport manager Bart Yonke, W9JJ. For 2023 and beyond, the assumption is made that the pandemic will be over and COVID-related restrictions will be relaxed. Yonke said the Programs and Services Committee invites participants' insights in advance of its January meeting regarding what they consider appropriate for operating AWRL Field Day 2022 during the ongoing pandemic. Field Day stations operating at high power became the topic of some discussion in the wake of Field Day 2021, when some stations were reported to be running the legal limit on FT8 on crowded bands. The committee is also interested in views on the 150-watt versus 100-watt change in the field day low-power category definition, which is being implemented across all contest platforms. New Year's Day marked the start of a new definition of low-power for operators in HF contests sponsored by the AWRL. The league now defines low-power as 100 watts or less. Although the ARRL says it made the move to standardize its categories with those in other low-power contests, the league also recognizes that 100 watts is now the most common maximum output of most modern HF transceivers. During 2020 and 2021, ARRL permitted a couple of basic accommodations in the field day rules during the COVID outbreak. Participants who could not or did not want to be in a group were allowed to operate from their home stations and contribute their individual scores to their club's field day aggregate score. Member scores were combined to achieve an overall final club score, which then appeared in the AWRL Field Day Result Summary in QST and on the AWRL website. In addition, Class D Home Commercial Power Stations were allowed to contact other Class D stations for point credit. In 2021, Class D and Class E Home Emergency Power Stations were limited to a maximum transmitter output power of 150 watts PEP, which is considered low power. Direct any questions to the ARRL Contest Department.
8: Now celebrating our 22nd year keeping the amateur radio community informed, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net.
2: The Volunteer Monitor, or VM, program is a joint initiative between ARRL and the FCC to enhance compliance in the amateur radio service. This is the December 2021 activity report of the Volunteer Monitor Program report for December 2021. Operators in Center Hill and Coconut Creek, Florida, were issued notices for excessive signal bandwidth on 40 and 75 meters in violation of section 97.307, subpart A, of FCC rules. General class operators in Hudson, Florida, Winterville, Georgia, Provo, Utah, and Bloomfield Hills, Jackson, and Howell, Michigan, received notices for out-of-band single sideband operation on frequencies not permitted by their general class licenses, in violation of section 97.301, of FCC rules. Technician class operators in Baltimore, Maryland, DeVernon, Illinois, Moore, Oklahoma, Bradenton, Florida, and Roseville and Rancho Cordova, California, received notices for FT-8 operation on unauthorized 20 and 40 meter frequencies in violation of section 97.301 of FCC rules. Commendations for exemplary amateur radio operation were issued to licensees in these cities. Dallonega, Georgia, for managing medical and technical issues during the Six Gap Century Bicycle Race in October. Riverside, California, for operation during the October earthquake situational emergency test. Swansea, South Carolina, for operation on the South Carolina HF Ares Net. Springfield, Indiana, for assistance to new operators in message handling, MIMS Florida for exceptional efforts in correcting wideband issues, and operators in Raymond, Mississippi for exemplary operation during AWRL field day, statewide HF and VHF nets, and assistance to new operators. The totals for VM monitoring in November were 1,901 hours on HF frequencies and 2,784 hours on VHF frequencies and above, for a total of 4,685 hours. There was one referral to the FCC for enforcement assistance. We thank Volunteer Monitor Program Administrator Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, for this month's report.
9: Since the UK regulator Ofcom was created in December 2003, there seems to have been a decrease in the amount of enforcement action for breaches of the radio spectrum regulations. Looking back to the October 1985 edition of the UK's Ham Radio Today magazine shows the high level of prosecutions that used to take place when communications regulation was carried out by the Department of Trade and Industry, the DTI. In 1984, there were 1,281 convictions relating to the illegal use of wireless telegraphy equipment, and just the first three months of 1985 showed 242 convictions. You can view the whole archive at worldradiohistory.com. In 2010, Ofcom stopped the annual publication of their prosecution and formal warning statistics and removed the historic prosecution statistics from their website. This action made it harder to determine if Ofcom was still carrying out any radio spectrum enforcement action. You can still see some of the historic Ofcom prosecution figures in the Internet Archive at web.archive.org.
6: ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, is pleased to announce the hiring of Josh Johnston, KE5MHV, into the role of Director of Emergency Management. Here to introduce us is Rick Linquist, WW1ME, reporting from League Headquarters.
7: Johnston is from Ozone, Arkansas, and comes to ARRL with 16 years of experience as the Director of Johnson County, Arkansas Department of Emergency Management. He holds an extra class ticket and is an ARES emergency coordinator, volunteer examiner, and ARRL-registered instructor. Johnston is also certified in FEMA NIMS and is a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA, Oxcom communications unit leader. He holds a bachelor's degree in emergency administration and management from Arkansas Tech. ARRL CEO David Minster, NA2AA, said Johnston's contribution will help ARRL continue to support its dedicated amateur radio emergency service volunteers, improve opportunities for training and advance relationships throughout the emergency communications community. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME.
6: With extensive experience in interagency cooperation and planning, Johnston is well-versed in the different aspects of emergency management and leading both professional and volunteer operators. He has experience in communications planning and execution in the field and at the local and state level. As an Arkansas Maxter certified emergency manager and passport member of Arkansas Emergency Management Association, where he served as president for two years, Johnston has experience working with government and agency representatives, as well as being boots on the ground in the field. Johnston will be based at ARRL's headquarters in Newington, Connecticut, and will be working with staff and member volunteers and coordinating with the ARRL Board's new Emergency Communications and Field Services Committee. The National Conference of Volunteer Examiner
3: Coordinators' Question Pool Committee has released the 2022 through 2026 Technician Class FCC Element 2 National Conference of Volunteer Examiner Coordinators Question Pool Syllabus and Question Pool into the public domain. The new question pool is available as a Word document or PDF. The three graphics required for the new Technician Question Pool are available within those documents or separately as a PDF or JPG files. The new pool incorporates some significant changes compared to the 2018 through 2022 pool. Its 257 questions were modified slightly to improve wording or to replace distractors. 51 new questions were generated, 62 questions were eliminated. This results in a reduction of 11 questions, bringing the total number of questions in the pool from 423 to 412. The difficulty level of the questions is now more balanced, and the techniques and practices addressed have been updated. The new 2022 through 2026 question pool is effective July 1, 2022, and will remain in effect until June 30, 2026, and must be used for technician class license exams administered on or before July 1, 2022.
7: A Barbados ham is among the world's oldest, if not the oldest, Winston A. Woody Richardson, 8P6CC, formerly VP6WR, has turned 107 years old, placing him among the world's oldest radio amateurs. The Woody Richardson Communications Room at the Amateur Radio Society of Barbados is named for him. There's a video of Richardson visiting the amateur radio of Barbados headquarters in 2020.
0: You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio.
1: A $47,533 ARRL Foundation grant will fund the initial phase of the Amateur Radio on the International Space Station STAR, Keith Pugh Memorial Project. Rick Lindquist, WW1ME,
7: is here with more. STAR, which stands for Space Telerobotics Using Amateur Radio, honors the memory of Keith Pugh, W5IU, a highly respected member of the ARIS team who died in 2019, ARIS, as you probably already know, arranges live question-and-answer sessions via ham radio between International Space Station crew members and students. Keith Pugh was a star ARIS technical mentor, assisting schools with ARIS contacts, encouraging interest in ARIS among educators, and visiting schools to teach students about wireless technology. The Aristar project is a new educational initiative that will enable U.S. junior and senior high school groups to remotely control robots via ham radio through digital APRS commands. Year one will focus on systems development and initial validation of Aristar. And year two will focus on evaluation and final validation. Systems development and evaluation will be led by university staff and students who will undertake hands-on wireless and telerobotics lesson development, learn about amateur radio, and support star engineering hardware and software development. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME.
1: In the second phase of the project, youth teams will be selected to experiment and critique star telerobotics scenarios in closed courses. In the process, ARIS will encourage students to prepare for and earn an FCC amateur radio license, enabling them to use ham radio to learn and practice concepts in radio technology and radio communication. ARIS USA Executive Director Frank Bauer, KA3HDO, praised the ARRL Foundation for its generosity. ARIS team member Keith Pugh, W5IU, Poured his energy into inspiring, engaging, and educating youth in space and in amateur radio endeavors, Bauer said. What better way to honor Keith than through the Aristar initiative? We thank the ARRL Foundation for its vision to move this initiative forward. Maybe someday one of our Aristar students will use their telerobotics skills to control scientific rovers on the moon or Mars. Over the past two decades, more than 1,400 ARIS contacts have connected more than 1 million youth with the ISS using amateur radio, with millions more watching and learning. The overarching goals for STAR are to improve and sustain ARIS STEAM educational outcomes. Robotics is gaining popularity among youth and adults alike, and telerobotics adds a wireless accent to robotic control. This will expand ARIS's educational dimension to attract the attention of more groups, students, and educators, outreach that promises to attract new audiences. The ARRL Foundation was established in 1973 to advance the art, science, and social benefits of the amateur radio service by awarding financial grants and scholarships to individuals and organizations that support their charitable, educational, and scientific efforts. ARIS is a cooperative venture of international amateur radio societies and space agencies that support the ISS. U.S. sponsors include AWRL, the Radio Amateur Satellite Corporation, the ISS National Lab Space Station Explorers, and NASA's Space Communications and Navigation Program. The primary goal of ARIS is to promote exploration of science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics topics. For more information, visit www.eris-usa.org or www.eris.org.
2: The U.S. Forest Service is proposing to implement a statutory required annual fee for new and existing communications use authorizations to cover the costs of administrating its authorization program. The ARRL plans to vigorously oppose the imposition of the proposed fees on amateur radio. The Forest Service proposal results from requirements set forth in the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018 called the Farm Bill. Specifically, Section 8705, Subpart C, Paragraph 3, Line 8 of the Farm Bill, Directs the Forest Service to issue regulations that require fees for issuing communications use authorizations based on the cost to the agency for maintenance or other activities to be performed by the agency as a result of the location or modification of a communications facility. The Forest Service is responsible for managing federal lands and authorizes the use and occupancy of national forest system lands for communication facilities that provide communication services for adjacent rural and urban communities. The agency said in its proposal that it administers more than 3,700 special use authorization on national forest system lands for infrastructure that supports more than 10,000 wireless communications uses at 1,367 communication sites. According to the Forest Service Notice published in the December 22, 2021 issue of the Federal Register, revenues from the proposed fee would provide the funds necessary to support a more modernized, efficient, and enhanced communications use program, and will cover the cost of administrating the agency's communication use program. Costs, as laid out in Section 8705, Subpart F, Paragraph 4 of the Farm Bill, may include expenditures for such things as on-site reviews of communication sites, developing communications site management plans, hiring and training personnel for the communication use program, Conducting internal and external outreach for and national oversight of the communications use program, and obtaining or improving access to communication sites on national forest system lands. AWRL encourages amateur radio licensees to file comments opposing the imposition of the proposed administrative fee on amateur radio users. Comments must be received in writing by no later than February 22, 2022. Comments may be submitted online at the Federal Rulemaking Portal or via USPS mail to Director, Lands and Realty Management Staff, 201 14th Street SW, Washington, D.C., 20250-1124 and must include the identifier RIN
9: 0596-AD44. BBC Radio 4 announcer and newsreader Jim Lee, Golf 4 Alpha Echo Hotel, launched special event amateur radio station Golf Bravo 100 Bravo Bravo Charlie from the BBC's Broadcasting House in London at exactly midday on 1 January 2022. Within minutes, amateur radio stations around the UK and throughout Europe were clamouring to contact the special BBC station and secure a prized entry in the logbook the London BBC Radio Group was granted an extended special event radio licence by the regulator Ofcom to operate the station throughout 2022. The amateur radio activity is one of many events organised to celebrate 100 years of British broadcasting, which began from Savoy Hill in 1922 as the British Broadcasting Company, moving to the iconic Broadcasting House in 1932 and gaining a Royal Charter as the British Broadcasting Corporation. The London BBC Radio Group has a growing membership, which includes engineers, journalists, producers and on-air presenters in both television and radio. The group is independent, but hosted and supported by the corporation. The group was launched in 2017 by a handful of staff radio enthusiasts to revive a long and rich history of amateur radio at the BBC, dating back to the Second World War. The Radio Shack at the BBC's headquarters, Broadcasting House in central London, was officially opened by the then Director-General, Lord Tony Hall, with an over-the-air message of congratulations. Lord Hall was subsequently bestowed honorary membership of the club. You can find out a lot more about the GB100 BBC operation, including the QSL policy, on qrz.com. And if you would like to listen to the opening moments of the activation from Broadcasting House, there's a link under this story on the Southgate Amateur Radio News website.
8: You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a podcast at our website, www.twiar.net, and streamed worldwide via Spotify and iHeartMedia. And now
4: with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy, whoosh,
10: coming at you over to radio and the internet. Somebody once said, maybe it was me, I don't remember now, technology is anything that wasn't around when you were born. So if you grew up with buttons, when the zipper came out, ooh, high tech. Actually, it is, if you think about it. a zipper is a pretty cool invention. But in this case, we're pretty much sticking to the tech that has uh, microprocessors in it. You know, Anything with a chip in it, sometimes I say. Microprocessors to be more accurate. Those thinking machines we call computers. Uh, the internet is not a thinking machine, but it is made up of computers. So I guess the internet, certainly your smartphone is a computer, your smartwatch. Uh, home theater, that's high tech these days. Didn't used to be. Used to be tubes. But again, if you grew up, If you grew up in, uh, you know, the late 19th century, uh, an airplane, wow, would be high tech. I just read a great biography of the Wright Brothers by David McCullough. And for at least three years after they first flew there at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina on the beach there, people didn't believe it. They said, no, you didn't fly. You liars. You're making that up. Even though there were eyewitnesses and pictures, they didn't. Oh, no, man cannot fly. Nobody believed it. It took three years and a very, very public demonstration before uh, the, anybody believed that the Wright brothers had invented the airplane. So that's there's that. Anything invented after your birth. Actually, I, that's not so, that's I guess not even a good measure either because uh, even though I was born a long time ago, computers had already been invented uh, shortly after World War II. Maybe even during World War II, there were tube-based computers calculating artillery trajectories and things like that. So, but, you know, things that became prominent after you became aware of things going on in the world. Because that's the new, is what I guess I'm saying. The new stuff is high tech. Uh, And there's certainly a lot of new stuff, man, no matter, even if you were born in the 90s, or the, are there people born in the 2000s? I guess there are. There are actual adults born in the 2000s. Even if you were born that recently... There, there are things that you go, wow, like self-driving cars, right? Wow. There's new tech all the time. This augmented virtual reality stuff, that's, that's pretty interesting, pretty exciting. Nowadays, I think this is true, you can't trust anything you see on TV or hear on the radio or anything like that. So your computer in your, in your phone, your laptop, is so much more powerful. There, so this article in the IEEE Spectrum, uh, he compares it to a giant mainframe from the early 1960s, the IBM 7090, the 7090. The first line of transistorized computers didn't use vacuum tubes. It was big, filled up a room. A lot of that was tapes. That's where it would store stuff. Uh, and I know some of our audience uh, actually has worked on these 7090s. <laughs> cost $20 million in today's money. About 6,000 times as much uh, as a really good laptop today. Six, I'm sorry, did I say six? 60? Try 60. No, six. Let's see. Good laptop, you know, that's about right. Good laptop, be around $2,000, $3,000, somewhere in there. 3,500. Of course, one of the problems in the old days with these mainframes is you couldn't sit down in front of it and use it 100%. You had to timeshare it with other people. You know, you were lucky, according to this article. By Rodney Brooks and the IEEE Spectrum. You were lucky if you get an hour of computer time a week. The 7090 had a clock cycle of uh, 2.18 microseconds. Translate that into the modern... You know, we talk about megahertz and gigahertz. It was 500 kilohertz. But even that overestimates its performance because of the way instructions worked. There was no pipelining in those days. So... It's estimated it could do about 100,000 instructions a second. That sounds like a lot. In fact, in 1963, that was, you're going, wow, that thing's fast. 100,000 instructions a second. Are a modern computer's 3 billion instructions per second? 3 billion. And, of course, that's per core. And you have, you know, in your iPhone, I think you have 8 cores, 6 or 8, something like that. And your laptop, you have, you know, 4 or more. My uh, my iMac has ten cores, so we're talking uh, when you add up the cores and everything, a hundred thousand times faster than that mainframe. One hundred. It's kind of hard. So it's kind of hard to put this all uh, in perspective, but because you don't have to, you know, wait and share your computer with anybody, you can uh, you can rack up nineteen hundred years of seventy ninety computer time every week. More, almost 2,000 years of computer time on the mainframe every week on your laptop. And we're doing stuff, though, to, to use it. That you, maybe you've heard of the uh, AI model GPT-3. This is a new artificial intelligence that's writing articles, blog posts, plays. To to make the model, just the model to train that language would have taken 36 million years on the mainframe, so that's why you know we didn't have artificial intelligence back in those days. People gave up on artificial intelligence; and said, you can't do it. Well, it helps if you have you know thirty six million years to to work on it. It makes it easier. I can go on and on about memory and storage and etc. But the difference, essentially, in sixty years of computing, is remarkable. You have the equivalent of thousands, maybe. Millions, maybe quadrillions of those seventy nineties on your laptop. Wow. Let's see. Actually, you know, I, I come to think of it, a lot of things happened uh, while I was gone, while we were gone, while we were enjoying the holiday. I hope you enjoy, I hope you had a good holiday. I do. I hope you had a nice holiday. Let's see what else. AT and and Verizon have thumbed their nose at the uh, Federal Aviation Administration. January fifth. What is that? Wednesday. They're going to turn on 5G wireless, and the, the FAA says this could be a problem uh, for planes, especially for navigation equipment like altimeters. The phone companies said, hey, you can't hold this spectrum. We spent billions of dollars on it. You can't hold it hostage until people upgrade those obsolete altimeters. Yeah, but if you're flying a plane with that altimeter, and the, yeah, not good. So that happens Wednesday. Tuesday, it's the end of the line for an old friend, BlackBerry. As of January 4th, if you have an old phone or maybe a tablet, like the playbook running BlackBerry's own software, it will no longer reliably function. That's the quote from the company. I don't know what that means. It will no longer reliably function. Okay, okay. So I don't know if you're still using that BlackBerry. Maybe it's time to get a a, a newer phone. Speaking of no longer reliably function, there was a YK22 bug. January 1st, Microsoft Exchange, which is a mail server widely used by big companies, uh, broke. They didn't at midnight, January 1st, 2022. They they. Uh, it's a it's it's a long sad computer science story, but. Uh, but they broke. And the, uh, the FIPS FS engine is blocking email delivery with on-premises servers starting at midnight. That's why you haven't had an email. And you know what? Not so bad. Honestly, not, not so bad. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends too as we talk high tech.
11: Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio.
0: You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the Amateur Radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. And now, with this week's edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here's Bill Continelli, W2XOY.
11: In May of 1970, with the Vietnam War in full swing, the United States invaded Cambodia for the purpose of rooting out the communists, using that country as a base of operation. This led to protests on college campuses across the nation and the deaths of four students at Kent State University in Ohio. At this point, the demonstrations exploded on virtually every major campus nationwide. One problem facing the leaders of these protests was how to exchange news and information with their collegiate brothers and sisters on other campuses. The internet was in its embryonic stage and available to only the military and a few select universities. Network news and wire services were not to be trusted. After all, They were run by people over the age of 30. The mail was too slow and in a shambles after the recent postal strike, and long-distance telephone calls were too expensive for students surviving on part-time jobs and care packages from their parents. Thus, they turned to an institution that was prevalent at that time on almost every college campus. Amateur radio. The Student Information Net was born. The net appeared on 7260 kHz and 14.294 MHz in the 40- and 20-meter bands. Net controls included K1WGM at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, and W2UC at Union College in Schenectady, New York. At first, the net was used solely for the purpose of gathering and exchanging information as to what was happening on the various campuses nationwide. The net was so good at this, as a matter of fact, that they began to feed news to the wire services and to the major networks. However, the net soon expanded in scope, and that's where the trouble began. Dialogue was encouraged among the various participants on the merits of the war and what type of protests should be used. News bulletins were passed as traffic to be rebroadcast on the college radio stations funds were solicited for the continuation of the student strike activities. Traffic was passed encouraging students to send their draft cards to Washington, D.C. for a massive bonfire. A boycott of Coca-Cola was discussed, as well as a demonstration to be held at Fort Dix on May 16th. W2UC and W3EAX exchanged information on the demonstration at the University of Maryland and the attempt to block U.S. Route 1. W2UC claimed they were forwarding all information received to a clearing center, the location of which was not specified. Then it started. The jamming, the deliberate interference, and the name calling by several unidentified stations. The net continued through the jamming and operated for about a month long enough for the U.S. to withdraw from Cambodia and for the summer break to arrive. But the controversy was just beginning. The July 1970 issue of QST contained an editorial in which the ARRL stated that the use of the amateur bands for heated political discussion was a self-imposed taboo in amateur radio. They said that because of amateur radio's international status, What goes out over the air can have negative political consequences for us at future radio conferences. As a result, according to the ARRL, there was no place on the amateur bands for arguing about the Vietnam War, advocating resistance to the draft, and talking about the new and permissive morality. The ARRL also condemned the jammers, stating that frontier justice vigilantes and Joe McCarthyism had even less place than politics in amateur radio. The letters from hams poured into QST. By a two-to-one ratio, they opposed the use of amateur radio for political purposes. One writer stated that the net was a violation of national security and notified his local FBI office. Another stated that the net advocated mass disobedience to the laws of the land. One amateur stated... We must keep politics and jammers off the amateur bands. A political discussion on the amateur frequencies is as inappropriate as a political speech on an air traffic control channel. The AWRL's reference to McCarthyism brought a rebuke from an amateur who said, Joe McCarthy was a great American who was proven correct in every case. And finally, one letter called the net participants creeps and sympathized with those who caused the QRM. On the other side, supporters of the net were appalled at the deliberate jamming and claimed that the net was non-political, provided accurate information, facilitated goodwill, and prevented false rumors. Members of the student information net claimed that the traffic passed was legal and was eventually carried by the UPI and AP wire services. Several writers brought up constitutional issues, claiming that the First Amendment gave the net operators the right to do what they did, as well as the right for every amateur to discuss everything, including unpopular causes. One ham, XW6SDW, condemned the anti-civil libertarian attitude of the ARRL and a majority of hams and gave up his license as a protest. The student information net lasted only one month, but it opened the door to the concept that amateur radio did not exist in a technical vacuum and that discussions of current political and social events were allowed on the amateur bands. Have we gone too far in the anything-goes direction? That's up to you to decide. As a postscript, W2UC was recently activated at Union College in Schenectady. If you ever hear it on the air, remember the role it played in amateur radio history 37 years ago. In our next installment, we are going to jump back in time to the depths of the Great Depression in the early 1930s. I hope to see you then.
12: Foundations of Amateur Radio The other day I came across a how-to video on becoming a radio amateur. It's a recurring kind of publication, the kind that I've contributed to in the past. I wondered what it would take to leave the hobby. First of all, I'd have to let my callsign lapse. That's easy enough, but I paid for five years, so it's going to take a while. When it has finally ceased being mine, have I stopped being an amateur? For one, my qualifications would still be in the regulators' database, likely well beyond my breathing years. I wonder if they implement the right to be forgotten. Another thing I'd have to do is stop knowing about how antennas work in day-to-day situations. I'd have to stop noticing the location of free-to-air television antennas, mobile phone towers, Wi-Fi antennas throughout the community and even the network in my home. I'd also have to say goodbye to all the friends I've made around the place. There's hundreds of people scattered around the globe who, with a single word, might lure me back into their world and with that the risk of being sucked back into the community once again. At a minimum, I'd have to stop using computers, or radios, or electronics really. I'd have to stop wanting gadgets and measuring equipment, not to mention having to mothball my soldering irons and give away all my heat shrink. I'd have to give back the space I've eked out in the house and return it to the general living space it once was. I'd also have to sell all my radio gear and antennas. I'd have to rip out the coax, fix up any holes, cancel pending orders for new antennas, and donate my books and magazines to the local library. I'd have to stop looking at electronics magazines, cut up my loyalty cards for the local electronics and hardware stores, and start an online store to sell all the connectors and adapters I've amassed over the time I've been part of the community. I'd have to forget the phonetic alphabet that I use almost daily and start using crazy words to spell things over the phone, like a normal person does. Experimentation would be a thing of the past and would be frowned upon as a fringe activity, one only suited to madmen and amateurs, and I'd have to stop investing my time in software and projects that might one day be used in amateur radio. One of the hardest things to give away would be my curiosity, the one thing that's innate to my wellness. I'd have to stop asking why and how all the time. I'd have to plead ignorance when someone asks how coax works and what's inside a blob of goop on a random circuit board they found on the side of the road. Then there's the other things like physics and general science. I'd have to disavow all knowledge of these activities. I'd have to stop looking at the stars and stop wondering which radio frequencies were being emitted from all over the night sky. I'd have to become ignorant of emergency services and communication, of event management and club life. I'd have to feign interest in anything that wasn't science or technology, and I'd have to keep a straight face and my mouth shut when someone extolled the virtues of an irrational belief system. I would likely have to give up my job as an IT consultant and start on a more manual job. Perhaps I'd take up gardening, though I'm not sure how I would do in the weather at my age. Even if I achieved all that and kept it up for the rest of my life, I'd still be an amateur, just one hiding from the hordes of humanity, striving to live on this ball of dirt hurtling through the heavens on a journey through the stars. I'm not sure I could do that. So, for better or worse, as I see it, once an amateur, always an amateur. And if you're curious and believe in science and technology, I'm here to say that you're well over halfway towards being an amateur. Welcome to the club. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo.
0: You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio.
6: The painful lessons of the flooding in Germany where the R River burst its banks last September were not lost on amateur radio operators. According to a report on the WIA Newswire, a prototype radio response system is now in the works with eye towards a rollout and demonstration this coming April. Networks are being established featuring high-performance Wi-Fi communications, providing those in hard-hit areas with the ability to send and receive messages over the internet. The prototype's development is being underwritten by the Deutscher Amateur Radio Club. Full-scale nationwide operation is estimated at costing 1 million euros. The DARC's emergency radio officer, Oliver Schlag, DL7-TNY, said outside funding would be needed to implement the full program. The ultimate goal is to provide the Wi Fi connections through the wireless local area network components, as well as charging stations for mobile devices of those in the impacted areas. New Radio Amateurs of
3: Canada President Phil A. McBride, VA3QR slash VA3KPJ, took office on January 1. He was elected by the RAC Board of Directors. McBride succeeds Glenn McDonnell, VE3XRA who served the maximum of three consecutive two-year terms. McBride is a former RAC Ontario South Director. Former Ontario North and East Director Alan Boyd, VE3AJB, is the new Vice President and former Member Services Officer and previous Atlantic Director Dave Goodwin, VE3KG, is the new Regulatory Affairs Officer. They succeed Doug Mercer, VO1DM, and Richard French, VE3KI, who served as Vice President and Regulatory Affairs Officer, respectively.
0: It's time for this week's Propagation Forecast Report, brought to us this week by Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, who reports that sunspot activity was substantially lower this week, but new sunspot groups emerged on December 31st, January 1st, January 4th, and January 5th. Average daily sunspot numbers dropped, however, from 110.1 to 36.4, while the average daily solar flux went from 124 to 91.4. Geomagnetic activity was still fairly quiet, even with a large number of flares and a coronal mass ejection, with average daily planetary A-index changing from 6.4 to 7.7, and average middle-latitude A-indice went from 4.4 to 6. Predict the predicted solar flux over the next month shows 10.7 centimeter flux values peaking at 120 on January 16th through the 24th, and once again at 120 in mid-February. So, the daily predicted values are 96 on January 8th through the 14th, 115 on January 15th, 120 on January 16th through the 24th, and 110 on January 25th. Looking at the predicted planetary A index, it will be 5 on January 8th, 12, 14, and 8 on January 9th through the 11th, 5 on January 12th through the 14th, 8 and 12 on January 15th and 16th, back to 8 once again on January 17th and 18th, and it will be 5 on January 19th through the 22nd.
7: Time now for the AMSAT report. Our report last week mentioned our newest satellite, XW3, or CAS9 if you prefer. At the request of the Chinese amateur satellite group CAMSAT, AMSAT has designated the satellite as HOPE OSCAR-113 or HO-113. XW3 was launched on December 26th. If you've not had a QSO on the new satellite, give it a try. The inverting VU linear transponder uplink is 145870 megahertz, and the downlink is 435180 megahertz. The transponder passband is 30 kilohertz. XW3 has a space camera aboard. AO 73 is operational again. This is your chance to earn the 73 on 73 award. Work 73 unique stations on AO 73 in any mode. No QSL cards are required. Send your log extract to n8hm at arrl.net with the call sign of each station worked time in UTC and date. AMSAT has a Twitter account where a lot of those who are roving will tweet their roves. If you need a grid or state to finish up an award, be sure to join at AMSAT. The AMSAT Report comes to us each week courtesy of Bruce Page,
9: KK5DO. The Icelandic radio ham Brynolfur Johnson, Tango Foxtrot 5 Bravo, made 25,237 contacts during 2021. He used the popular WSJT digital mode called FT8, which uses a multiple frequency shift keying protocol. In fact, TF5B made slightly fewer contacts than the year before, when he broke the 30,000 contact barrier. The number of separate world entities he contacted, called DXCC, was 154. Of the 40 available CQ areas, he contacted 39. 87.5% of contacts were made on the 17, 20, 30 and 40 metre bands. Dividing the contacts up by continent, European contacts counted for about 75%, North America 13% and Asia about 10%. In contrast, Africa only counted for 0.4% of all his contacts. So congratulations to Billy, as he's affectionately known, with a great DX result last year. You can read more on the Icelandic Radio Association website at tinyurl.com forward slash IARU hyphen Iceland.
4: Colorado amateurs were active and on high alert as wildfires consumed as many as a thousand homes and businesses in suburban Denver over the last couple of weeks. The wildfires, believed to be among the state's most damaging, began on Thursday, December 30th, as two grass fires erupted in mid-morning. Hams with Boulder County Aries were activated. Amanda Alden, K1DDN Public Information Coordinator for the ARRL Colorado Section, said that Boulder County Aries Chairman Alan Bishop, K0ARK, and Colorado Section Emergency Coordinator John Blone, KF0JB, sent out preemptive pages and alerts to a group of adjacent counties for Ares members who could assist in Boulder. There was concern that the fires, fanned by 100-mile-an-hour winds, would block the usual responders' access to the area. As evacuations of thousands began, Ares operators were on the air at the Boulder EOC and three evacuation shelters. The fires eradicated whole neighborhoods in the towns of Superior and Louisville in Boulder County, and people had only minutes to safely escape. Amanda went on to say that approximately 12 Ares members kept communications running, especially at shelters, where Ares members remained for 44 hours. As snow began to fall 24 hours after the initial fire, the blazes were mostly extinguished and power was being restored.
5: According to a news report via the Southgate News Service, authorities in the Netherlands have closed down the radio interference from an FM broadcaster That was disrupting communications between pilots and air traffic controllers at the Amsterdam airport. A report on the website of the Dutch National Amateur Radio Society, Veron, said that the FM transmissions were from a licensed broadcaster, but were in violation because the music was being broadcast on the aviation band. Air traffic control of the Netherlands said the transmitter had been shut down. No information was given about any sanctions and the broadcaster was not identified. According to the report, The violation posed a risk, but no planes were in immediate danger during that period.
2: The WSJT Development Group has released an updated version of WSJTX version 2.5.4, which it's calling a bug fix. The primary fix repairs a defect that caused occasional crashes when contacting stations with non-standard call signs. It also allows... MAP65's best fit Delta Phi solution, to be displayed to the user. The WSJT Development Group also has welcomed new members Chet Finnell, KG4IYS, and Dr. Yui Riss, DG2YCB. Each brings important skills and experiences to the project after the loss of Bill Somerville, G4WJS, said Joe Taylor, k1jt on behalf of the group the newly constituted group has been working to redefine standard operating procedures for new releases installation packages for wsjtx are available for windows and linux an installation package for mac os will be added soon
8: now celebrating our 22nd year keeping the amateur radio community informed you're listening to this week in amateur radio available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net.
9: Dr. Tamitha Scove, Whiskey X-Ray 6 Sierra Whiskey Whiskey, and Jim Bacon, Golf 3 Yankee Lima Alpha, are among the speakers at the Ham SCI Workshop 2022, entitled The Weather Connection. Virtual participation is free of charge. You're invited to join Ham SCI at its fifth annual workshop on March the 18th to 19th at the US Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. The HAM-SCI workshop is a hybrid in-person and virtual event that aims to bring together the amateur radio community and professional scientists. The 2022 HAM-SCI workshop is organized by the University of Scranton in collaboration with the University of Alabama and NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Support is provided by the National Science Foundation. Dr. Tamitha Scove, Whiskey X-Ray 6 Sierra Whiskey Whiskey, is a pioneer in the field of broadcast space weather and will focus on the ionospheric impacts of space weather. Jim Bacon, G3YLA, a recent recipient of the Radio Society of Great Britain Les Barclay Memorial Award to recognise those who've made excellent contributions to propagation research and understanding, will focus on the influences of terrestrial weather on radio propagation. Further details of the event can be found at hansci.org forward slash HAMSCI
6: 2022. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have invited comments regarding a new monument management plan for the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, KH1, KH3, KH5, and KH9. The monument encompasses approximately 495,200 square miles in the Central Pacific Ocean. It includes seven islands and atolls, Baker, Howland, and Jarvis Islands, Johnston, Wake, and Palmyra atolls, as well as the Kingman Reef. Don Greenbaum, N1DG, serves as the appointed citizen-at-large representative for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Community Group, providing input on drafting the new management plan. This notice is the result of two years of drafting that plan with input from NOAA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the community group participants.
13: This is November 3, Victor Echo Mike with your Parks on the Air update. Be sure to tune in to your favorite ham radio media outlets in early January, as next month's POTA update will include not only the December release, but the year-end summary for 2021 as well. We look forward to having you join us as we celebrate a spectacular year of Parks on the Air. And now for our monthly stats update. POTA had plenty to give thanks for in November. During the month, there were over 300,000 contacts made by more than 1,300 activators. These operators put... Just over 3,100 parks on the air from 23 different DX entities. The top activators for the month were K4NYM with 4,440 QSOs, and NG5E who activated 111 different parks. The top hunter for the month was K9ICP with 1,063 QSOs while hunting 770 different parks. In our potted DX corner, England was our Region 1 leader with just under 1,000 QSOs. Canada was our Region 2 leader with approximately 14,500 QSOs. And Japan was our Region 3 leader with just over 4,500 QSOs. The top DX activator for the month was VE7NB with 1,902 QSOs from 46 different parks. And outside of North America, the top activator was JJ1DQR with 954 QSOs from 18 different parks. For November's bonus feature, we'd like to quickly touch on the community resources that are available to participants in the Parks on the Air program. As Parks on the Air has grown, we've tried to provide some resources to help newer members of the POTA community find their way. The best place to start is to head to POTA.app, hit the menu button, and check out both the frequently asked questions and the rules and conduct. After you've done that, also, head to the Community Resources section. Here you'll find both an Activator and a Hunter introductory course prepared by Matt, N3, and WV. These are great videos that give a lot of awesome details for Activators and Hunters in the POTA program. Also in this Community Resources section, you'll find both POTA Activator and Hunter PDF guides, These are very detailed and give a lot of excellent information about activating and hunting in POTA, and they're excellent resources to keep with you. Last but not least, we'd like to call your attention to the POTA Slack and Facebook groups, where you can chat with other members of the community, ask questions, swap tips and stories, or even just share some pictures of your activations. The Slack and Facebook groups are also the best places to get in touch with the admins and developers in the POTA program, So be sure to check them out if you'd like to chat with any of us that support POTA. This concludes our November 2021 Parks on the Air update. As always, the team at Parks on the Air
4: wishes you safe activations and happy hunting. 73. The Australian Army is working to simplify some areas of its radio communications through the help of a collaborative effort with Microsoft. The program relies on artificial intelligence, or AI, to automate communications transcription and analysis the military is hoping the end result will be greater situational awareness and a higher level of tactical decision-making. A December 16th report by the Microsoft News Center said the first priority will be the analysis of radio voice communications, providing searchable text transcripts that military commanders can refer to and glean enhanced situational awareness to assist in their decision-making. Part of that effort is to use artificial intelligence to identify the sender, recipient, and and other key message parameters which will help sort out the transcription process properly. Brigadier Ian Langford, Director General of the Future Land Warfare Branch, told Microsoft, employing artificial intelligence tools through a reliable, secure, and resilient platform to consolidate battlefield communications is an important step toward the creation of a decision support engine to create decision advantage in the future.
5: Dick Filstra, PA0 Delta Fox November, is the 2022 Carol Perry Educator of the Year. Orlando Hamcation has announced that Dick Filstra, PA0DFN, is the 2022 recipient of the Carol Perry Educator of the Year Award. The award recognizes an outstanding contribution to education and advancing youth in amateur radio. It was first awarded in 2018 to its namesake, Carol Perry, WB2 Mike George Papa, to recognize her work in teaching students about ham radio. Orlando Hamcation and the AWRL are sponsoring the 2022 AWRL National Convention, February 10th through the 13th. Perry is a past state and amateur radio amateur of the year and a recipient of the AWRL Instructor of the Year Award. She has moderated the Hamvention Youth Forum for more than three decades. Filster is the first international winner of the Carol Perry Educator of the Year Award. A retired school principal, he has worked for years to reach out to youth with the latest technology to ham radio. At ham radio events, he helps groups of youngsters in building electronics projects, guiding groups of other hams to assist them in to finish the projects correctly. He has also organized international school projects, including Communications Help's International Progress Program, with participating schools throughout Europe. Filstra is the Netherlands International Amateur Radio Union Member Society, Varon's Region 1 Amateur Radio Direction Finding Committee Working Group member. It focuses on the European Youth ARDF Championship on transmitter hunting activities and competitions. Filster is also very active in ARDF.
3: After a successful pilot camp program in 2021, the next Youth on the Air for the Americas camp has been set up for June 12th through the 17th of 2022. With more details on the upcoming youth camp, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report.
7: The camp will return to the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting in West Chester Township, Ohio. The application period will open online on February 11th. Eligible participants are amateur radio operators between 15 and 25. A total of 30 campers will be accepted. Some of the 30 slots will be reserved for campers who reside outside of the U.S. but do reside in the Americas. Priority will be given to first-time attendees. Returning attendees will serve as camp leaders. Youth on the Air Camp Director Neil Rapp, WB9VPG, is remaining cautiously optimistic regarding pandemic issues. Beginning in 2022, the camp will alternate as much as possible each year between June and July. RAP hopes that alternating months will provide some diversity with school schedules, extracurricular activities, and major ham radio events. I'm Rick Lindquist, WW1ME.
3: Beginning in 2023, the location of the camp will rotate to various locations within the Americas, A system will be announced in which International Amateur Radio Union member societies and clubs will bid to serve as host of the region. For details about the camp and to sign up for updates by email, visit Youth on the Air Camp website. Contact RAP for more information.
0: We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
9: Al Williams, Whiskey Delta 5 Golf November Romeo, draws our attention on Hackaday to a video by Peter Waters, Golf 3 Oscar Juliet Victor, about a budget basic antenna for a small garden. Peter knows the pain of trying to operate a ham radio transmitter in a limited space. His recent video shows how to put up a workable basic HF antenna in a small backyard. The centre of the system is a 49 to one unun. un-un, an unun is an antenna matching transformer like a Ballon, but while a Ballon goes from balanced line to unbalanced antenna, the Anun has both sides unbalanced. You can see his explanation in the video. The tiny hand sized box for the transformer costs well under 50 euros and covers the whole range of shortwave bands at up to 200 watts power handling. The video shows the inside of the box, which, as you'd expect, is a graphite toroid ring with a few turns of wire around it. The proposed antenna is an end-fed dipole fed with the unun. The theory is somewhat controversial, with some people swearing they can't work and others saying they're amazing. We're guessing that the design may not outperform a perfect antenna system, but we also know that you can have a lot of fun with almost any kind of radiator. You can read the article, which has a link to Peter's video, at hackaday.com. Search for the story, Ham Antenna Fits Almost Anywhere.
0: And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP.
14: If you've gotten the reputation for doing climbing work for hams, sooner or later the word gets out and you become everyone's friend. Some of your friends may have real need of your services on their towers, and even on their roofs sometimes pleas for antenna help are hard to say no to. Here's how I handle those situations. If you're doing work for a close relative, do all the install work yourself, and only use quality parts, and install them to be bomb-proof so a return trip won't be necessary. But for upgrades or severe weather repairs, I use an approach similar to this. I tell them, sure, I'll do the job, but since my safety is the most important part of the job, if at any time I feel my safety may be in question, I will stop doing the job, and they decide not to finish the work. For relatives, I never charge for tower or antenna work, but always tell them my safety disclaimer. So if I stop, they know ahead of time why and agreed to my rules before the work started. This way, I'm never telling them no when they ask for my help. For hams in general, I tell them I will examine the tower first before I decide if I will do the job. When I get there, I examine the condition of the tower. I look at how it is mounted and the overall size of the tower, width and height. I do not climb those tiny TV antenna towers that are narrower than my two feet side by side. I tell the owner this before I get there. If the tower is bent at all or not perfectly vertical, I also decline the job. I have found that agreeing to look at the tower will save lots of guilt trips and sad stories. If you outline your criteria for rejecting jobs based on safety before going to see the tower, you can eliminate the dangerous jobs with a minimum of hurt feelings. When you do accept a job for a fellow amateur radio operator, take the opportunity to preach the gospel about safe climbing. Show them your belt and ropes and all your safety gear you've gathered over the years. I always keep mine covered in the back of the car so it's always ready to show. Just the sight of proper climbing gear impresses people the extent to which you value your personal safety. I take time to appoint someone to act as ground crew supervisor and charge them with keeping everyone far away from the base of the tower. If kids are present, I sometimes drop a screwdriver to impress them with what would happen to their heads if they hung around the base of the tower when something fell. While I'm on the subject of doing work for other hams, I'd like to mention a cheap and durable sidearm for the typical home antenna tower. I use inch or larger conduit and put a proper bend in one end, then clamp it to the tower. It is necessary to drill at least one hole and pin it to the tower to prevent rotating in the wind. I would ask a professional electrician to bend the conduit for me, if you have no experience doing that yourself, since it is easy to kink it and ruin it. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio.
1: And finally this week, a retired U.S. Navy commander, Frank Hutchison, AG7QP, has taken the principles of submarine design that he'd learned in the military and steered them in the direction of his amateur radio public service work. An emergency responder in his Spokane, Washington community, Frank has converted a 60-year-old camping trailer into a ham radio communication center, a project he began more than a year ago. The trailer now has the capacity for three radios, two heavy-duty rechargeable batteries, and a pair of 200-watt solar panels on the roof to keep the interior lit. There's even a kitchenette. Following months of work, Frank was able to give the camper a test drive of sorts this past October during an emergency exercise at his church. That helped Frank see what else needed to be done to get the emergency vehicle ready for action. Frank, who is the assistant emergency coordinator for the Spokane County Amateur Radio Emergency Service, told the Spokesman newspaper that the renovated trailer gives him the capability of helping others. I can support local and statewide emergency communications for one week without any outside support, he told the newspaper. He went on to say that he hoped there would never be a need to use it at all, but with wildfires and other natural disasters a reality, he'll be ready when the time comes.
0: Many of the news and information items heard on this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by The American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Audio News Service and the ARRL Letter, the Southgate Amateur News Service, Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo and the Southgate Vibes News Service, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain and Ofcom, the South African Radio League, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia and the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the New Zealand Association of Radio Transmitters, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the RAIN Hamcast, Eric Guth, 4Z1UG and QSO Today, QRZ.com, The Tech Guy, Leo Laporte, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet.
1: Electron Bender's Amateur Radio Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma airs This Week in Amateur Radio, every
6: week on club-owned KOKTLP 90.9. With special thanks to all our weekly news sources and to you, our listeners, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. If you would like to write to us, you can find everything you need, including archive editions of the news service, at our website at TWIAR.net. And now for all of us at This Week in Amateur Radio headquarters and all our news team around the world, this is Will Rogers, K5WLR in Fayetteville, Arkansas, wishing you 73.